I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 65, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 443 to 459. Chapter 8, Pedophilia, Pederasty, and Male Intergenerational Sex. Introduction. If, as Dr. Melvin Anschel has proposed, homosexuality represents a double deviancy in terms of its sex object and its sexual aim, then homosexual pedophilia and pederasty, in which a child or adolescent of the same sex remains the primary sex object, represents a triple deviancy. The terms pedophilia, also pedophilia, from the Greek pace, child, and philia, love, for was coined by Professor Richard von Kraft Ebbing to describe the condition in which an adult is erratically attracted to young children of the same or opposite sex. Pederasty, derived from the Greek pederastes, literally a lover of boys, is of course of more ancient tradition. Intergenerational intimacy, on the other hand, is a modern-day catch-all phrase used by pro-pedophile pederast homosexual organizers to cover the broadest range of same-sex attraction from pedophilia and pederasty to homosexual prostitution with minors to consensual sex between two adult homosexuals of divergent ages. Pedophilia. Since the Victorian days of Kraft Ebbing, the clinical definition of pedophilia has been expanded and clarified to distinguish it from other types of sexual offenses against minors under the legal age of consent. Kraft Ebbing, who introduced the concept of pedophilia erotica into medical and psychiatric literature in 1912, attributed the psychosexual perversion and morbid disposition to acquired mental weakness, such as senile dementia, chronic alcoholism, paralysis, mental debility due to epilepsy, injuries to the head, apoplexy, and syphilis. During the 1920s, the idea that the child violator was not of sound mind was a commonly held belief. However, later studies have shown that the pedophilic offender rarely suffers from psychotic mental illness or mental deficiency. (coughs) The Austrian psychiatrist and psychologist Dr. Alfred Adler claimed pedophilia was a tendency and practice provoked by the subject's own fears of a sexual partner. For Freud and his disciples, pedophilia was simply another form of sexual perversion stemming from an unresolved Oedipus complex. In the mid-1940s, the sexologist Alfred E. Kinsey attempted to redefine pedophilia as simply another sexual orientation like homosexuality rather than a sexual perversion and a criminally prosecutable offense. Kinsey's promotion of children as sex beings and pedophilia as a virtually harmless if not positively beneficial experience for children was hailed by proponents of adult child sex as nothing short of visionary. Intended to soften the underbelly of public and legal opposition to adult child sex, including homosexual pedophilia and pederasty, Kinsey's 
scientific musings were later absorbed into the ideological framework of school-based pro-homosexual organizations, such as the Sex Education and Information Council of the United States and the National Conference of Catholic Bishops slash United States Catholic Conference Family Life Bureau. By the late 1950s, psychiatric literature on sexual perversions began to reflect a greater interest in both same-sex pedophilia and pederastic practices. Interestingly, in their 1958 textbook, Modern Clinical Psychiatry, Drs. Arthur P. Noyes and Lawrence C. Kolb viewed pedophilia as a variant of homosexuality and made no reference to heterosexual pedophilia. The 1959 edition of American Handbook of Psychiatry provided a very brief and perfunctory notation on the pedophile as one who may be homosexual, heterosexual, or both in his choice of objects, and theoretically his activity can take almost any forms characteristic of heterosexual or homosexual activity with an adult partner. With the publication in 1964, of pedophilia and exhibitionism by a team of specialists from the forensic clinic of the Toronto Psychiatric Hospital and Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, we can see a concerted effort to better define, differentiate, and categorize the different types of pedophilia so as to provide a more effective basis for the assessment and treatment of the disorder by the medical community and the courts. Currently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-4, text revised, 2000, section 302.2, published by the American Psychiatric Association, defines clinical pedophilia as a primary sexual attraction by a person 16 years or older with a five-year age differential between the pedophile and the child and of at least six months' duration, that is, marked by recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges, or behaviors involving sexual activity with a prepubescent child or children, generally aged 13 years or younger. The causes of clinical pedophilia remain undetermined, although there appears in some cases to be a connection between child molesters who were themselves victims of sexual abuse as children and their victims whose ages correspond to the ages of the perpetrators at the time of their assault. Although in the public mind the term child molester is synonymous with pedophile, it is important to remember that many adults convicted for sexual crimes against children do not meet the DSM definition of clinical pedophilia. Part of the difficulty in defining pedophilia stems from the fact that the word child can be used to describe a boy or girl who has not yet entered puberty, as well as a minor who has reached or passed puberty but has not reached the age of consent and is still considered a minor under the law. There are child sex offenders who meet none of the APA criteria for pedophilia, but who have committed indecent assault and rape even murder of young children simply because the child was unfortunate enough to be at the wrong location at the wrong time. As Eric Leberg, author of Understanding Child Molesters, has pointed out, sexual molesters may have more than one preferred sexual outlet, and there are cases when a molester of adults switched to children when they were in his range of assault. There are also situational sex offenders 
whose primary sex attraction is normally directed at adult women, not children, but who were, but who under extraordinary, extraordinary conditions of severe stress, including the death or catastrophic illness of a spouse, may act out his un- immature sexual impulses with a child, including a daughter, incest, or stepchild. Also included in this grouping are prostitute users who have no special interest per se in children as sex objects, but who may wish to experiment with children or who are so morally and or sexually indiscriminate that it doesn't matter if their sex partner is 14 or 24 as long as she or he meets his sexual criteria. Although some pedophiles are alcoholic, alcoholism itself is rarely a cause of child molestation since, as Lieberg has noted, successful seductions of children requires much grooming and pre-planning in a sober state. Alcohol, however, may lower inhibitions when the molester is ready to act, Lieberg noted. Pederasty, the most ancient form of homosexuality, has no clinical definition that is comparable to pedophilia. Nevertheless, its meaning is almost universally understood as same-sex activity between an adult male and a male adolescent. In 1955, Dr. Bernard C. Gluck, Jr., head of the psychiatric clinic at Sing Sing Prison in New York, state in a report on the study and treatment of criminal sexual perverts, suggested the term hebophilia, literally the love of youth, as opposed to children, be used as a clinical definition of pederasty. Later, the term epophilia, i.e. male adult attraction for young post-prepubescent boys, or post-prepubescent boys between the ages of 13 and 15 was introduced into professional literature. Recent literature on child prostitution uses preferential child sex abuser to describe men who prefer pubescent children as sex objects, but none of these terms has gained popular acceptance. So pederasty and pederast, with their obvious connection to male homosexuality, have continued to define same-sex relations of adult homosexuals with underage boys from the onset of puberty to adulthood. A crime still, but a condition that is different in both its ideological and behavioral aspects from pedophilia. One of the major contributions of the aforementioned 1964 Toronto Pedophilia Exhibitionism study carried out by J.W. Moore, R.E. Turner, and Marion B. Jerry was to compare case histories of convicted and self-admitted pedophiles whose victims were primarily little girls with pederasts whose victims were primarily young boys at or about to enter puberty. The investigators discovered that although there were similarities between the two groups of criminal offenders, there were significant differences that extended beyond the obvious fact of different gender preference. Subsequent research in the field of sexual offenses against children and youth over the last four decades has largely upheld most of these findings, a summary of which follows below. The ideology of pedophilia and pederasty differ. 
the Toronto investigators chose a rather simple definition of pedophilia as the expressed desire for immature sexual gratification with a prepubertal child. The research subjects consisted of convicted sex offenders from the Toronto Forensic Clinic with supportive data from Kingston Penitentiary and the Ontario Reform Institution and patients who were referred from local mental health agencies and community groups or had voluntarily submitted themselves for treatment. While admitting it was difficult to make generalizations about sex offenders in general and pedophiles in particular, the researchers were able to arrive at some basic conclusions regarding pedophiles as a whole. The Pedophile Act, the researchers said, represents as represents an arrested development in which the offender has never grown psychosexually beyond the immature prepubertal age or a regression or return to this state due to certain stresses in adult life or a modification of the sexual drive in old age. The age distribution of the convicted pedophiles and the study groups tended to cluster around peak periods of the life cycle, that is, puberty, mid to late 30s, and mid to late 50s, the largest aggregate being middle age, not as popularly supposed older men. Some of the offenders have been chronic pedophiles since their adolescence, while some other older patients were first-time offenders. Typically, the pedophile was a heterosexual male. His early family life appeared to be rather nondescript or utilitarian and utilitarian. He was married or had an adult girlfriend and had children of his own, including stepchildren. He appeared to be of normal intelligence and was conventional in his overt behavior and his religious beliefs. His occupation was gender traditional as was his recreation that included an interest in sports and other masculine hobbies. His child victims were prepubescent girls from 6 to 12 years with peak ages between 8 and 10 years. His victim was more likely to be someone he knew, such as a relative or a neighbor's child or a child of a casual acquaintance. On occasion, the girl child was a stranger who presented the pedophile with an opportunity for abuse that was too inviting to be passed up. The site selected for the altercation was always a location without super adult supervision, such as the offender's home or his car or some out-of-the-way place in a public facility such as a park. The nature of the pedophile's sexual offenses reflected his desire for immature, generally non-coital sexual gratification that included fondling and being fondled and sometimes exposure of the genitals. genitals. Overt acts of violence such as rape or murder and deviant acts such as sadomasochism, fetishism, and sodomy were atypical for the pedophile sex offender in the Toronto study. The research team also reported that pedophilia was sometimes accompanied by other paraphilias, most commonly exhibitionism, the second part of their study, and voyeurism. In terms of treatment for the pedophile, the researchers concluded that, contrary to widely held public opinion that condition is untreatable, it can in fact be successfully treated, especially for adolescent and first-time offenders, or where the sexual molestation involved a situational incident as described earlier. 
The key to effective treatment is the breaking of denial by exposing the cognitive distortions used by the pedophile to excuse his actions and the development of empathy with their victims. He cannot achieve a balanced, functional, emotional life unless he can identify his emotions accurately and understand their dysfunctions. The prognosis for sex offenders is generally good, said Professor Kenneth G. Gray, M.D., QC, in his foreword to the Canadian study, but it is better for some categories of offenders than others. He noted that the recidivism rate varies with such factors as the type of offense, the nature of the act, and previous criminal record. For example, the heterosexual pedophile, who is a first-time offender, is not likely to repeat. The outlook for the homosexual pedophile with a criminal record is much less favorable, he concluded. Emphasis added. Pederas, a different breed of sexual offender. In the Toronto study, the term homosexual pedophile was used to define same-sex activity between an adult homosexual and his victims, most of whom were just about to enter or were already in various stages of pubescent development. The peak age of boy victims of homosexual pedophiles came between 12 and 15 years of age. That is, homosexual predators of young boys were starting age-wise just about where heterosexual pedophiles were leaving off. Also, the number of his victims increased right into puberty, resulting in a statistical overlap with adult homosexuality. That is, homosexual pedophiles have a wider age range of victims. In retrospect, it appears that the term pederast would have been a more accurate definition of this category of male same-sex offenders than pedophile. The profile of the homosexual pedophile pederast found in the 1964 study appeared to be more complex than that of the heterosexual pedophile, although they did share some common personality traits. Like the heterosexual pedophile, the pederasts in the Toronto study were emotionally immature, narcissistic, and highly compartmentalized individuals. However, in terms of familial history, the pederasts followed closely the close bonding mother and distant father pathology of many homosexual males. His IQ was slightly above that of the heterosexual pedophile. He was unmarried with little interest in women, although there were a small number of pederasts in the Canadian investigation who were or had been married and had and some had children. In, in occupational choices and religious practices, the pederast was conventional, although in contrast to the heterosexual pedophile, his hobbies were geared towards the arts rather than towards sports. However, it was the nature and magnitude of his sexual offenses that set the pederast apart from the pedophile. Significantly, homosexual sex offenders of minor children had at least twice or more the number of victims as heterosexual pedophiles. In addition to claiming more victims, the nature of the abuse by the homosexual predator was more aggressive and orgasmic than that of the heterosexual pedophile. As the Toronto investigators noted, the sexual acts carried out by the pederast against his adolescent male victims were by definition deviant acts. These acts closely resembled adult homosexual behavior, including oral genital contact, fellatio, masturbation, fraudage, and sodomy. 
The investigators also reported that the overt sexual abuse of a young boy about to enter puberty or well into puberty by an adult homosexual often raised serious gender identification problems for the victim that interfered with normal psychosexual development. The boy victims of pederasts were more likely to be strangers or casual contacts that had been made through all-boy organizations such as scouting or youth groups. These were boys for whom the homosexual pederasts had no strong emotional bonds. Depersonalization remains the sine qua non of pederasty, as with adult homosexual relations. Statistically speaking, there were more heterosexual pedophiles in the Toronto study than homosexual pedophiles or pederasts, the latter group accounting for approximately 30 to 45% of all sexual offenses against children under the age of 14. However, when one considers the fact that homosexuals represent a small minority of the general population even in large urban areas like Toronto, then it is clear that homosexual sex offenders were substantially overrepresented in the Canadian study. Further, the sexual offense rate among boys may be underestimated as boys are less likely to report incidents of sexual abuse, including repeated and violent assaults over a long period of time than girls. Finally, the homosexual sex offender and exhibitionist, especially one with a criminal record, had the highest rate of recidivism, 55%, twice that of heterosexual offenders, and was among the most difficult types of sex offenders to successfully treat. As Professor Gray had indicated in his foreword to the study, the prognosis for the homosexual pedophile with a criminal record was very poor. These findings are in keeping with more recent studies that demonstrate that the most persistent recidivists are found among men who are fixated on hunting boys or young men for sex. Pederasty in 21st Century America Modern scientific and sociological research and studies in the United States, Latin America, Europe, and Asia on contemporary homosexual practices, as well as new autobiographical and biographical data on historical and contemporary homosexuals who have shared a predilection for underage male sex partners have confirmed that pederasty still holds an inordinate attraction for a substantial number of adult homosexuals worldwide. As a group, homosexual males continue to be overrepresented in sex offenses against minors, especially adolescent boys. The fact that adult sex with minor boys is a prosecutable offense in most parts of the world apparently has simply added to its charm. The pederast contingent of the homosexual collective in the United States and abroad has become more aggressive and better organized in recent years due in part to the overall success of the burgeoning gay rights movement and to the creation of almost instantaneous uncensored communication amongst national and international pedophile organizations via the internet and community bulletin boards. Although the homosexual collective has always recognized the existence of confirmed pederasts within its ranks, there has remained a certain amount of tension between the two groupings reminiscent of the political battles that Magnus Hirschfeld and his Scientific Humanitarian Committee waged against the pederast leader Adolf Brand and his community of the elite in Germany in the late 
1800. Unfortunately for the collective, it has had a difficult time shaking off the public's perception of the predatory homosexual as a hunter and seducer of young boys, especially as pederast apologists for like David Thorstad are want to remind the homosexual collective that pederasty has been the most enduring and universal form of homosexuality in the recorded history of mankind. Man-boy love relationships are a happy feature of the rebellion of youth and its irrepressible search for self-discovery. Most of us, given the opportunity and the assurance of safety, would no doubt choose to share our sexuality with someone under the age of consent. Thorstad has repeatedly reminded his gay lesbian audiences without fear of contradiction. Tom Reeves, an avowed faggot who loves boys, has called pederasty a central feature of gay life, as reflected in the many prominent pederastic institutions that characterize urban gay communities, such as the teenage meat racks and youth-oriented fads and hangouts. Some leaders deny that pederasty is a gay issue, says Reeves, and in a sense, that is, this is true since the general arena is sexual freedom. However, as Reeves so indelicately reminds the collective, such statements miss the obvious that gay men fuck and suck teenage boys regularly. Homosexuality, it seems, is just one big seamless garment. Nambla, long on men and short on boys. David Thorstad and Tom Reeves were among the founding members of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, Nambla, a national association of pedophiles and pederasts. Prior to the formation of Nambla, there were a number of pedophile clearinghouses in major cities throughout the United States, such as the Chicago-based Adonis Male Club, an international body culture association. In early 1961, both of these associations, which catered to pederasts in search of boys, 13 and up, were indicted by a federal grand jury in Chicago for conspiracy to violate the Postal Obscenity Law, 18... U.S. Code 1461, confiscation of organizational mailing lists revealed that the that club membership was dominated by male teachers. According to NAMBLA historians, the major events that precipitated the founding of the organization was a series of police raids against local pederasts in the Boston area, one on December 8, 1977, in which about two dozen men in the vicinity of Revere Beach were arrested and charged with engaging in sex with teenage boys, and a second homophobic witch hunt that led to the arrest and indictment of 103 men in the Boston Public Library three months later on similar charges. Vocal elements within Boston's homosexual community, including the editors of Gay Community News and FAGRAG, organized an ad hoc group called the Boston Boise Committee to protect the civil rights of the second accused sex offenders and rally public opinion against alleged police harassment. One of the spinoffs of the Boston Boise Committee was NAMBLA. The other was the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, GLAD, G-L-A-A-D. The organizational meeting of NAMBLA took place on December 2, 1978, at the Unitarian Universalist Community Church of Boston. Approximately 150 men were turned 
turned up at the invitation only affair organized by Reeves. As Reeves has observed, not only did the church provide the site for a conference on a prosecutable crime, but Reverend Robert Wheatley from the National Office of the Unitarian Church addressed the assembly of pederasts and pedophiles along with Father Paul Shanley, Cardinal Madero's representative for the Boston Archdiocese Office for Outreach to Sexual Minorities. During the conference, Chief Organizer Reeves argued that in some cases, adult boy lovers are dominated physically, emotionally, and spiritually by the boys they love. Daniel Sang, who attended and later chronicled the NAMBLA organizational meeting, said that the Roman Catholic Church was singled out for special condemnation. The Church condemns sexual deviance, but it is hypocritical, i.e. tolerating and even rewarding personal sexual hypocrisy at the highest levels as long as outward fealty is displayed to central control. Cardinal Spellman and Paul VI Sick are recent examples, Sang reported. At the close of the conference, 32 men and two teens caucused and formed NAMBLA as a civil rights organization fighting for youth liberation, gay liberation and sex liberation, and the abolishment of capitalism and age of consent laws. NAMBLA has troubles. The membership of NAMBLA that runs somewhere between 400 to 1,500 men is composed primarily of pederasts. However, the majority has charged that the organization has fallen under the evil domination of the organization's pedophile minority. In a letter to the NAMBLA Bulletin in December 1996, Thorsted reminded the current leadership that the pederasts have always been the backbone of the organization. What has happened to the political goals of NAMBLA which are to struggle for sexual freedom and liberation, not merely for the right of dirty old men to get their vicarious jollies, he asked. To which the then editor of the bulletin, Mike Morisi, tartly replied that he remembered when Thorstead was a connoisseur of very young boys also, but he had moved up to pederasty, having leaving the rest of us bad pedophiles behind in much the same way as the larger gay movement left him. In 1997, NAMBLA received some unwanted national publicity when one of its recently enrolled members was arrested for the murder of 10-year-old Jeffrey Curley in in the East Cambridge neighborhood of Boston. On October 1, 1997, Charles Gaines, 22, a gay misfit and writer of man-boy love poetry, and Salvatore Sicari, his partner in crime, lured the youth into Jane's car with the promise of a new bike. Jane's had been stalking the boy for some time, but when, when Jeffrey attempted to fight off an attempted rape by Jane, the 300-pound man sat on him and stuffed a gasoline-soaked rag into the boy's mouth and suffocated him. The boy's body was eventually dumped into the Great Works River in Maine. Sakari and Jaynes were arrested, tried, convicted of first-degree and second-degree murder, respectively, and received life sentences. During the trial, it was revealed that the police had found NAMBLA literature in Jaynes' confiscated car, and that on the day of the murder, Jaynes 
had recorded in his diary that he had used a computer at the Boston Pride Library to access Nambla's website in order to bolster his courage, bolster his courage to commit the assault. Jeffrey Curley's parents filed a $200 million civil lawsuit in Massachusetts District Court that charged Nambler with wrongful death and civil rights violations by advocating, conspiring, and promoting criminal pedophile, pedophile activity. In 2000, the state court awarded the parents $328 million. Nambler appealed the verdict on December 8, 2000. The Massachusetts American Civil Liberties Union filed a legal brief in defense of Nambler and free speech. Sharing Common Ground In October 1998, XY, a magazine for gay teen boys, carried an opinion piece against Nambler, against Nambler by Karen Ocom, a member of the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. The piece dripped with venom. Ocom said that when she watched Nambler members parading in celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Riot, my skin crawled as these pasty white, nerdy, hunched over men scurried away from my tape recorder like cockroaches afraid of the light. These men aren't gay and we mustn't let them co-opt our movement. They are simply perverts who like to fuck children, using the gay community as a Trojan horse to storm the barricades of legitimacy. Yet despite such occasional outbursts of intolerance, it is obvious that the homosexual collective and groups like NAMBLA share much common ground when it comes to advancing their political agenda for children's sexual liberation, aimed at providing children with sexual choices choices independent of parental influence and societal norms. After all, as Jim Repner, Jim Kepner, gay activist and curator of the International Gay and Lesbian Archives, NAMBLA Archives, told his audience of 40 at the 10th International Membership Meeting and Membership Conference of NAMBLA held in Los Angeles in November 7 to 9, 1986. Half of gay history is pedophile history. Both the collective and NAMBLA support legislation lowering the age of consent for children to engage in unhindered sexual activity with persons of any age and sex, although their tactics may differ. Whereas the former prefers the incremental approach, NAMBLA would just as soon cut to the chase and do away with the age of consent altogether. William A. Percy, a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, said he tried to get NAMBLA to compromise on an age of consent, say 14 or 15 years of age, so that people could see us as a little more reasonable, as a little more reasonable, but without success. If we examine the ordinary language of the homosexual collective, it is clear that man-boy sex plays an important role in contemporary homosexual relations. The gay lexicon is resplendent with descriptions of and references to underage boy recruits, a.k.a. chicken, babette, baby, candy, chicken little, cluck, cutie, fawn, fragile, number, virgin, fuzz face, missy, pumpkin pie, puppy flesh, twinkle, jail tail, quail, and cornflake. A chicken dinner is sex with a teenager. A 
chicken plucker is a homosexual who specializes in anally deflowering young boys. A butchered chicken is a boy who has been anally raped for the first time. To skin some chicken is to force a boy to come across. I think the reader gets the point. Gay magazines, fiction, and pornography actively promote intergenerational sex with adolescent boys. Fifteen is a magazine directed at homosexual teens and young men ages 12 to 21. The average age of 15, the average age of XY readers is 18. That's XY magazine. According to Herm, er, according to Ed Hermont, owner of Giovanni's Room in Philadelphia, one of the nation's oldest homosexual and lesbian bookstores, Pederasty, is the foundation of all gay literature. If we pulled all the books that had adult youth sexual themes, we wouldn't have many novels, memoirs, or biographies left, he told reporter Benoit Denizet Lewis in a 2001 interview for Boston Magazine. Active recruitment of minors has been an avowed practice of both the homosexual collective in Nambla, which is chronically short of willing boys. Lesbians are also into the recruiting game. During the collective's 1993 march on Washington, one of the chants echoing from the lesbian contingent was 10% is not enough. Recruit, recruit, recruit. What are child-targeted homosexual networks like the Gay Lesbian Straight Education Network, GLSEN, dedicated to safe schools campaigns to affirm the homosexual lifestyle for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, if not the active, if not for the active recruitment of the young. GLSEN's BookThink. BookLink advertises texts for children beginning at kindergarten age. On the day this writer went to their website, BookLink was carrying prime promos for the Harvey Milk story by Carl Krakow, K6, and Emma Donahue's Kissing the Witch, Old Tales to New Skins, grades 7 to 12, a baker's dozen of modernized fairy tales, including an updated version of Cinderella, who forsakes the handsome prince and runs off with the fairy godmother. GLSEN works closely with that with the Lambda Legal and Educational Defense Fund to provide the legal and political framework for test court cases aimed at the homosexualization of all elementary and secondary schools within colleges, public, private, and religious in the United States. In terms of lesbian recruitment, a number of years ago at the eighteen at the nineteen eighty celebration of Eleanor Roosevelt's birthday in Davis City, California, as part of the National Lesbian Day, feminist speaker Kathy McDevitt was reported to have stated, we finally realized that recruitment is the only answer. Lesbian goals must be to recruit more lesbians. On my honor, lesbians reflect on their second, on the scouting experience, edited by partnered lesbian Nancy Manahan, offers a number of examples of how adult female homosexuals groom targeted Girl Scouts as potential recruits for their cause. 
The homosexual collective shares Nambla's anti-child, anti-nurturing characteristics and is indifferent to the true welfare of children, youth, and their families, including the young victims of predatory homosexuals as man-boy lovers. This truism is backed by the institutionalized silence of the collective with regard to forming police authorities of sex crimes against young boys and teens in which they have knowledge, of which they have knowledge. It is also manifested in the collective rather cavalier attitude toward homosexual rape of underage boys. One rather chilling expression of the collective's callous disregard for young male rape victims is found in the homosexual anthology Gay Roots, 20 Years of Gay Sunshine, an anthology of gay history, sex politics, and culture, 1991, edited by Winston Leland, an ex-priest ordained by Cardinal Richard Cushing in Boston on December 21, 1966. Prison Sex at Age 16 is an autobiographical account written by 34-year-old Dalton Lloyd Williams in 1979 while he was serving a life sentence for murder in the Texas penitentiary. The events described in salacious detail took place at the El Paso County Jail in the mid-1940s. Williams had been arrested for burglary. He was only 16, but he told the police that he was 17 and was incarcerated at an adult facility instead of a juvenile home with four hardened criminals, Frank, Ray Butch, and Larry. Williams described his body build as slim, supplely curved with youthful muscles and almost hairless. On his first night in jail, young Williams, who had already experienced some homoerotic feelings, was simultaneously orally and anally raped by all four of his cellmates. His recorded reactions to the violent assaults were expressions of being scared and being frightened, mixed with joy and ecstasy. Immediately after the experience, Williams said that in his mind he finally admitted to himself that he was a homosexual and that he would never again be ashamed of what he, what he was. From now on, he would be proud to be gay. What was telling about this story is not Williams' tale, but the short preface that accompanied the story written by Leland. This account presents one gay man's initiation into prison sex. Other initiations may be quite different, without any consent on the part of the person involved, stated the ex-priest editor. Leland's opinion aside, the person in this case was, in fact, a minor, and the initiation into prison sex was, in fact, rape. More accurately, multiple rapes. The odds against the young man, four grown men doing time for violent criminal acts, including rape, murder, and robbery, to one pubescent boy, to one pubescent boy in a locked jail cell at night, was hardly an inducement to freely given consent. Further, early on in his story, Williams confided that as a boy of eleven, he had spent time on in a reform school where older boys forced him to sexually service them. After a while, Williams recalled, he began to willingly submit to being sucked and fucked in the butt. We uh, stroked and fucked in the butt. 
Yet Leland appeared to be totally oblivious to the ramifications of William's early history of sex or abuse and its effect on his subsequent sexual behavior. The only thing that apparently mattered to Leland was that Williams had affirmed his homosexual identity and was now a member of the collective. Leland's preface demonstrates in a rather dramatic manner that the homosexual collective and the organized band of man-boy lovers like Lambda, Nambla, despite their internal squabbling over practical politics and tactics, are co-conspirators at heart. They both share a common enemy, society, pederasty, the new sexual frontier, a close a clue, a clue that pederasty and to a lesser degree pedophilia are on the fast track to being decriminalized in much the same way sodomy has come to be decriminalized is evident from the recent cave-in of certain professional and scientific organizations in reaction to pressure from the homosexual collective with regard to reevaluating adult-child relations in a more favorable light. In 1998, the Psychological Bulletin, the Review Journal of the American Psychological Association, carried a sleeper article titled, A Meta-Analytic Examination of Assumed Properties of Child Sexual Abuse Using College Samples, by Drs. Bruce Rind, Robert Balserman, and Philip Tomovich. The Rind article, Rind et al., 1998 was as much bad science as it was bad morals. Like Simon LeVay's mispublicized 1991 article supporting, reporting to have discovered a non-existent gay gene, Rind et al. served up more advocacy science, this time in support of consensual adult-child sex. The main conclusion of the Rind et al. story study was that most youngsters who have been sexually abused, note the study definition of child sex abuse, CSA, includes both contact and non-contact sex by adults, did not suffer long-term consequences. And that is especially that is especially true of young boys who are willing to participants in sexual activity with older males. Beliefs about CSA in American culture center on the viewpoint that CSA by nature is such a powerfully negative force that A, it is likely to cause harm, B, most children adolescents, adolescents who experience it will be affected, C, this harm will typically be severe or intense, and D, CSA will have an equivalent, equivalently negative act, as impact on boy, both boys and girls. Despite this widespread belief, the empirical evidence from college and national samples suggests a more cautious opinion. Results of the present review do not support these assumed properties. CSA does not cause intense harm on a personal, on a pervasive basis, regardless of gender in the college population. The finding that college samples closely parallel national samples with regard to prevalence of CSA types of experiences, self-perceived effects, and CSA symptoms relations strengthens the conclusion that CSA is not a 
property phenomenon and supports Constantine's 1981 conclusion that CSA is an, has an adult or inevitable outcome or set of emotional reactions. The most amazing thing, however, about these conclusions is not that they were called from a study deeply marred by numerous methodological, presentational, and interpretive defects, but that the authors had the goal to wrap up their pseudoscientific findings in indignant, moralistic language. The authors, Kinsians all, are passionately against the completion of morality and science that has hindered a scientifically valid and understanding scientifically valid understanding of this behavior and created hyatrogenic self-induced victims in the process. The behaviors such as matur- masturbation, homosexuality, <clears throat> fellatio, canalingus, and sexual promiscuity were codified as pathological in the first edition of the American Psychiatric Association's 1952 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The number and variety of sexual behaviors labeled pathological has decreased, but mental health professionals continue to designate sexual behaviors as disorders when they violate current sexual scripts for what is considered acceptable. The history of completing morality and law with science in the area of human sexuality by psychologists and others indicates a strong need for caution in scientific impulses of sexual behaviors that remains taboo, with child sex abuse, sexual abuse being a prime example. The case for virtuous pederasty. The RIND article is, of course, not the first pseudoscientific work in modern times that has come has been directed at redeeming pedophilic acts. In 1987, Boys on Their Contacts with Men, a study of sexually expressed friendships by Theo Sanford, was published in the United States. This edition was based on Sanford's earlier works, Pedosexual Contacts and Pedophile Relationships, Netherlands Institute for Social Sexological Research, 1979 and the sexual aspects of pedophile relations, State University, Utrecht, Netherlands, 1981. A graduate of the Catholic University of Nimengen, Sanford, later earned his doctorate in social sciences from Utrecht University, where he also served as a researcher for the university's interfaculty department of lesbian and gay studies. All of the above works are based on Sanford's original work on intergenerational sex that include the results of detailed private interviews with 25 Dutch boys ages 11 to 16, mean age 13.4, each of whom was involved in a sexual liaison with an adult male. The age range of the latter was between 26 and 66, mean age 39. Since indecent behavior with a minor under 16 years of age is a criminal offense in the Netherlands, the majority of these affairs were by definition illegal. The stated purpose of Sanford's research was to discover if adult boy sex was a positive experience for some boys involved in particular. 
adult sexual relationships. Based on his research, the author concluded it was a positive experience for all but one of the 25 boys in his study. In virtually all cases, the young boys said that they willingly traded sex primarily in the form of mutual masturbation and fellatio for the attention they received. About one-third of the boys engaged in sex with the pedophile pederast on their first contact while others were groomed over a period of time before sexual contact was instituted, initiated. Grooming is a complex process used by pedophiles and pederasts to gain access to and secure their victims and to decrease the likelihood of discovery by parents and police. Through the process of grooming and the pedophile gains the child's trust, breaks down his defenses and inhibitions, or manipulates him into sexual activity, and secures a promise of secrecy that seals the sexual bargain. According to psycholo psychologist Anna C. Salter, the establishment and eventual betrayal of affection and trust occupies a central role in the child molester's interactions with children. The grooming process often seems under sim, often seems similar from offender to offender, largely because it takes little to discover that emotional seduction is the most effective way to manipulate children. In the Sanford study of all, in all cases, it was the pederast who introduced sex into the relationship. None of the boys had either the knowledge or the experience to initiate what were essentially advanced homosexual techniques. Some were introduced to homosexual acts by viewing male pornography. Over a period of time, some became proficient enough to take, on an act, take an active role in the homosexual encounters. A small number of boys permitted oral anal contact rimming. Among the least desirable acts, sex acts engaged in by the boys were sodomy and ingesting ejaculate during oral sex. Not surprisingly, the pederast got better sex from older boys than the younger ones, who were generally immature and sexually passive. Sandwich Sanford quoted Brungerstrom, 1975, that an important element in the satisfaction that a pederast experience is derived from the lust which the boy experiences after being initiated into homosex, that is, the pedophile pederast gets pleasure in corrupting a virgin. And I'll conclude my podcast here at page 428 at the top because I'm already at 54, 38 minutes, 38 seconds. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.